morning, everyone. Well, as I say many times up here, um, I used to uh, teach high school. The time I taught high school, at least some at high school, was so congested um, in the hallways that on like rainy days or snowy days, the staircases could completely become gridlocked such that you couldn't go up or down. And so they put a policy into place that some of the staircases would be up only and some of the staircases would be down only. And then it would keep moving. Uh, To enforce that, then a teacher would have to be placed at the top or bottom of said staircase. As the... uh, uh, Lord of the Sith over room 210B, I was uh, stationed at the uh, up only staircase. So as I said a hundred times a day, one time this young man came, I said, up only, and he just blew right past me. Well, we can't let that disrespect stand. So I shouted down, I said, sir, this is an up only staircase, please come back up. He gave me one of these. So on my 25-year-old legs, I down the staircase, but I realized that my shoes were untied. So at the third to last step, I stepped on my un-untied shoelace, and I, I fell over the last three steps. I landed right on the young man and drove him face first into the floor. <laughs> After getting up, and I'm okay and he's okay, I didn't say another word to him. I just took him to the office and reported his minor offense. The next day, I was at the top of the staircase, and a different group of kids came by, and I said, up only staircase, and the kid in the front of this little group goes, and then he guided everybody on down the hall, and as I heard them walk away, I heard one of them whisper, don't ever go down that staircase, that teacher will tackle you. So, uh, yeah, from that young man's point of view, he was just going down the stairs, and all of a sudden, I was on him. He didn't see the whole shoelace thing. So even though I was known, at least some of it, as the Christian teacher, I uh, found this reputation for violence extremely useful in my staircase monitoring duties. Indeed, no one ever tried to go down that staircase again. We've gotten a handful of questions this year about Christians and the use of violence. I'd like to read you some of the questions we've gotten. Self-defense, question mark. When and if defending you and yours, you kill someone. Like if someone breaks into your home, can I shoot the intruder? Another person wrote, as followers of Christ, we are called in Matthew and Luke not to resist an evil person. If anyone slaps us on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. What does that look like with regards to defending ourselves against evil, protecting our families from violent evil, and even the use of lethal force by hand or by weapon? Another wrote, when is violence acceptable? Protecting family, defending our country, etc. Now, no one comes to this question as a blank slate. Every single one of us has a bias of some kind. So, uh, in all honesty, you should know my various biases before you hear anything I have to say. So, you know, like, okay, well, that's where he's coming from and that's why. So, my first bias is that I am a Christian. And so that means no matter how much logical sense a point of view makes in my head, if I become convinced that that point of view is contrary to the will of God in these scriptures, I will realign my beliefs and actions until I think they line up with what I think I understood from these scriptures. Now, I know that's scary to some of you, but let me tell you why I do that. Because in all my life, every time I have thought what was in my head made more sense than what was here, it turned out badly for me. And every time I followed what was here, even though it didn't make sense to me at first, it went really, really well. So based on those experiences, 
I try to follow Jesus to the best of my ability, even if I can't quite get it at first. My second bias that you should know about is that for a good 18 years, I was a martial artist. Um, For times, I owned my own school. I paid my way through college, literally teaching others how to harm people in self-defense. My third bias is that my stepfather was physically and psychologically abusive. So I know what it is for a household of weaker individuals to be terrorized, injured, and live under the threat of death from a stronger yet unstable individual. And my fourth bias that you really want to hear is that I always wanted to be a pacifist. Someone who uh, doesn't take part in any violence for any reason. To me, pacifism would be so clear, so cut and dried to know what to do and what not to do in every situation. As far as I can tell, Gandhi and the Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. dedicated their lives to nonviolence. It brought them honor. It brought them death. It brought them honor in death. And they are the last two people, as far as I'm concerned, in recent history for a long, long time, as far as individuals, who actually made the world better for those around them. I find that when you practice pacifism, not just pop off about it, but when you practice pacifism, it always brings respect and positive change. So there was a movie that came out last year about an interesting person, true story, a pacifist, a conscientious objector who served in World War II and became the first conscientious First, I can get that word out. Conscientious objector to win the Congressional Medal of Honor. So the movie is called Hacksaw Ridge. If you're not familiar with it, I'm going to show you the trailer. Let's watch this together. What the hell is your delay, Captain? We're waiting, sir. Waiting for what? Private Doss. Who the hell is Private Doss? dreamed about being a doctor, but I uh, didn't get much school. I can't stay here while all them go fight for me. But you figure this war is just going to fit in with your ideas? While everybody else is taking life, I'm going to be saving it. That's going to be my way to serve. This is a personal gift from the United States government designed to bring death to the enemy. Well, I'm sorry, Sergeant. I can't touch a gun. She don't kill. No, sir. You know, quite a bit of killing does occur in war. Private Doss does not believe in violence. Do not look to him to save you on the battlefield. I don't think this is a question of religion. I think this is cowardice. I'll fall in love with you because you weren't like anyone else. They're saying you could go to prison. But I don't know how I'm going to live with myself if I don't stay true to what I believe. With the world so set on tearing itself apart seem like such a bad thing to me to want to put a little bit of it back together. Private Doss, you are free to run into the hellfire of battle without a single weapon to protect yourself. I'm going to get you home. Something you gotta see. Who did this? That's the card. We have to go back up tomorrow. And they're not gonna go up there without you. I 
one more. So you can kind of see what that's all about. It was a fine movie. Uh, excellent story about the uh, power of Christian conviction in the hands of a very simple man. Um, and yet as I watched the movie, I couldn't help but notice everybody else around him is armed and fighting. And I wondered, what if nobody on our side in the Battle of Iwo Jima was armed? I have some questions about this pacifism thing in the real world. But before we go there... Um, I want to tell you that we are going to respect each other in this room today if it kills us. Um, I want to tell you a story about my first year of seminary that we are not going to repeat in our congregation. So my first year of seminary, they had, I'd go there to learn about God, right? How to minister in his name. And uh, they had a forum on Christian pacifism. I was so excited. I want to be a pacifist, remember. So I went so I could listen and learn. And uh, it was interesting philosophically, what they were saying, but I didn't find it helpful historically. So they had a question and answer afterward, and I raised my hand, and I said, now, they tried appeasement as the official policy in World War II. They let Germany move into the Rhineland. They let Germany take Czechoslovakia, but by Poland, it was evident that they weren't going to stop. Would a pacifist approach really say to let them have Poland also and all the rest of it? The first one to let me have it was a grad student on the panel. Why do you people always ask about Hitler, he said. It's not productive. Well, first, I didn't know what you people he was referring to. I was an eager convert to pacifism. I just wanted this question answered. Well, I said, I appreciate the philosophy that you're espousing, but I can't see how it works in the real world. And since I have to live in this world, if I'm going to live by this, I, I need to know how it works. Well, he said, you need to know history. World War II only started because we were so harsh to Germany during World War I. Thank you, I said. I'm aware of history. But I'm not sure saying that if we had always been pacifist, then we could now go on being pacifist. We haven't always been pacifist. Are you saying that it is too late to start now? He turned red, but the philosophy professor who was really running this thing saved him when he held up his hand and said, The scriptures tell us that the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are headed for destruction, but to we who are being saved know it is the very power of God. He was basically saying that if I were saved, I'd already think like he thinks. But since I'm obviously not and I'm headed for destruction, that's why I can't understand it, and it seems like foolishness to me. Everyone on the panel nodded vigorous agreement. I came there wanting to be a pacifist, but with snide arrogance, they not only stiff-armed my question, but they excommunicated me from faith in Jesus Christ. Fortunately, I don't require their approval. We are not going to treat each other that way here today. Some of you are pacifists, or almost pacifists. I know you are. I don't hate you, and I don't disrespect you. I'd love to be you if I could get some of my basic questions answered. Some of you are not pacifists at all. In fact, some of you have sworn oaths, sworn oaths to inflict violence on others should a need arise in order to protect the innocent, civil order, and freedom. So who, who here today is 
law enforcement or retired law enforcement. I think we got the police force right up here. Who else? Everyone's keeping, you guys supposed to keep it a secret? You're not supposed to tell? <laughs> the uniform, when I see you riding around, always clues me into what you're doing during the day. <laughs> so, sorry, who, who here is law enforcement or retired law enforcement? Still not these two. Don't look at them. All right. Who, who, who's here, who, who here is military or retired military? Yeah, these guys are a little more on it. All right. I respect you all. I appreciate you. I rely on you. I will not be insulting or degrading you today. As a child, I was always thankful when a neighbor would call the police on my stepfather because he would rip the phone out of the wall before he started in so that we couldn't. I was always grateful when you came. I'm sorry that my mom would not cooperate with you and that you were never properly thanked, but I want you to know that those unwashed kids with bad haircuts watching you from behind those blinds are grateful that you are there. So when we go home today or when we stand out in the lobby and talk, or God forbid somebody wants to post something on social media, I must insist that we remember we are family and we respect each other as brothers and sisters. Pacifists will not be elitist, snide, or dismissing, calling people warmongers or gun nuts. The other side, uh, the non-pacifists, I suppose, will not be bullying or gloating, calling people liberal or coward or unpatriotic. We are brothers and sisters in Christ. We might disagree. We will disagree. But if you're a person who cannot stand to disagree with people, see, I don't know how to end this sentence. I want to tell you, if you're a person who can't stand to disagree with people, there's the door. But there's nowhere you can go. Everywhere in the world you go, you're going to find people to disagree with. So you might as well just stick it out here and stay put. Learn how to disagree as a civilized American, or more than that, as a follower of Jesus Christ. So let's get started now. We came to hear the voice of Scripture. Okay, the voice of Scripture. Up. Pacifism has this going for it, and this is no small thing, that the voice of the New Testament is, in, is uh, unanimously in favor of nonviolence, and it doesn't contain a single verse in favor of violence. Now, let's just read the Bible together here to get started. When I first practiced this sermon, it was way too long, so uh, I, I'm just going to do two scriptures here, but let me promise you there was about 10. Let's start in Hebrews chapter 12. Let us, run the race with endur- uh, let us run with endurance the race God has set before us. We do this by keeping our eyes on Jesus, the champion who initiates and perfects our faith. Because of the joy awaiting him, he endured the cross, disregarding its shame. Now he's seated in the place of honor beside God's throne. Think of all the hostility he endured from sinful people. Then you won't become weary and give up. After all, you have not yet given your lives in your struggle against sin. This passage says that enduring persecution is the way of Jesus. And until they kill you the way they killed him, you've not gone all the way yet. Romans 12. Bless those who persecute you. Don't curse them. Pray God will bless them. Be happy with those who are happy and weep with those who weep. 
Live in harmony with each other. Don't be too proud to enjoy the company of ordinary people. And don't think you know it all. Never pay back evil with more evil. Do things in such a way that everyone can see you are honorable. Do all that you can to live in peace with everyone. Dear friends, never take revenge. Leave that to the righteous anger of God. For the scripture says, I will take revenge. I will pay them back, says the Lord. Instead, if your enemies are hungry, feed them. If they are thirsty, give them something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals of shame on their heads. Don't let evil conquer you, but conquer evil by doing good. And on and on the New Testament goes like this. Yet I did, as I studied the scripture, notice two oddities. Several times in the Gospels, Jesus or Peter or John the Baptist will have a run-in with a Roman soldier. A Roman soldier trying to follow God. And although they're given ample opportunity, they never tell them that the way of Jesus is for them to stop being a soldier. Listen to John the Baptist's sermon in Luke chapter 3. If you don't know John the Baptist, he was somebody who said everything that was on his mind until they cut his head off. John the Baptist says, Even now the axe of God's judgment is poised, ready to sever the roots of the tree. Yes, every tree that does not produce good fruit will be chopped down and thrown into the fire. The crowds asked, What should we do? John replied, If you have two shirts, give one to the poor. If you have food, share it with those who are hungry. Even corrupt tax collectors came to be baptized and asked, Teacher, what should we do? He replied, Collect no more taxes than the government requires. What should we do? Asked some soldiers. John replied, Do not extort money or make false accusations and be content with your pay. Jesus also met a Roman centurion who wanted to have faith in him. And all Jesus had to say was, I tell you, I haven't seen faith like this in all of Israel. If the New Testament's primary concern was that we disband all violence, military, police forces, it passed up every opportunity to state that. Now, in early church history, many of you are aware, there were Christians who refused to serve in the Roman legion. And that that is true, and you cannot blame them, because at that time in the Roman army, their duty would have been, among other things, to capture and execute other Christians. So we can understand why they didn't want to sign up for the legion. But when it came to official church laws in church history, you find things like this written in the third century. When a Christian soldier kills someone on the battlefield or a Christian man kills someone in self-defense, let him remove himself from communion for three years to weep and mourn. Here's what I'm getting from this history and these scriptures, and you can certainly disagree with this interpretation. But I'm getting that Christian love must be extraordinary. We must love even our enemies And when we are harmed and the desire for revenge rises up in us, we must squash that down, mortify it, crucify it, and not give in to it. That is the Christian response. But I am not convinced that preventing evil people from harming innocent people 
or evil nations from overrunning other nations always comes from a desire for revenge. Maybe we just don't want to be German. Maybe we just don't want to be Japanese. Maybe we just want to be ourselves and we value freedom. If I keep you from taking that from me, does that mean I hate you? Not automatically. If you try to take my personhood from me and I stop you, is that revenge? I don't think so, and especially not if at the end of it all, you're back inside your borders and I'm back inside mine. Last I checked, Germany and Japan still exist, and they're doing great. And I think we even like each other again. Is war awful? Absolutely. No, no one who's been in a war has ever said anything other than war is hell. But is it the worst thing that can ever happen? That's a matter of opinion. The American Civil War was horrible, violent, and bloody. But more horrible than two or three more centuries of slavery? Who can say? Here's why, although I want to be a pacifist, I still hold back. First reason is intuition. Not helping the weak against the strong goes against every moral gut instinct of every good person you meet, even pacifists. Second reason is I don't think that getting rid of all violence actually gets rid of all violence. I think often it trades one form for another. So, for instance, at my house and the domestic abuse, if you refrain from calling the police, because you know if they show up, they're just going to smack my stepdad with a billy club, throw him on the ground, cuff him, tell him to get in the car. He won't get in the car. They'll have to pick this big guy up, put him in the car. He'll hit his head on the way in. They always hit their head on the way in. Uh, and then when he's in prison, he'll be behind an electric fence with enough power to kill him if he tries to escape. But he wasn't bright. He would have tried to escape. That's a lot of violence. But if you don't do that, then what you have instead is a woman and several children being subjected to unspeakable violence nightly for the rest of however they, long they are allowed to live by their now unrestrained captor. Third reason I'm not yet a pacifist is, in my way of thinking, slavery is not always preferable to war. Another reason is I think that pacifism, carried to its fullest extent, would lead to the extinction of pacifism. You see, only liberal states allow you to be a pacifist. States like the United States, the United Kingdom, Israel, France. You can be a pacifist in these countries and talk about it and live just fine. In many other countries of the world, you cannot practice it or talk about it or spread it around. So if you could make one of these uh, liberal states entirely pacifist, let's pick on France. They're always so much fun to pick on. If you could make France entirely populated with pacifists, they would almost immediately be swallowed up by a neighboring nation and absorbed by one that does not allow pacifists to exist. Successful pacifism leads to a world with no pacifists. And if Christianity is pacifist, then it may lead to a world with no Christians. The fifth reason is uh, all of human history. And all of human history and all over the whole earth today, and it took me a while to research this, there is no single nation on the whole face of the earth with no army and no police force. 
Some have only one, some have only the other. Some are so tiny they have an agreement with their neighboring nation to do their national defense for them. But every nation on earth has a violent recourse to protect itself in place and has in all of human history. Now, if all of human history won't convince you, I don't think that I'm going to be able to either. I have another reason which I came to me just over the weekend. I think pacifism is a very powerful tool in situations where an oppressor is controlling or tempting other folk, like the Romans controlling Israel, the Nazis when they controlled Holland, or let's be honest, American government and society over certain minorities in the 60s. The pacifism used by folks in those situations, unmasked evil. It showed who the bad guys was. It had great effect to make change. I'm not so sure pacifism is as effective against a homicidal maniac who leaves his house every three to six months looking for a victim. And so the answer, direct answer to your question, is violence acceptable for Christians? I must answer uh, sometimes yes. And in the vast majority of the Christian world throughout all of history, the church has made allowances for violence in the defense of personhood. So there. But I can't be done just like that because what about all these New Testament scriptures about turning the other cheek and and not resisting an evil person? We have to do something with that. Otherwise, what did we do in here today? Well, I asked our youth guy, Adam Lips, about this. I asked him because he's seminary trained, he's well-read, he's more conservative than I am, he's very thoughtful. And he gave an answer that has had me thinking ever since. He said, had Jesus been asked this same question, I'm confident he would have redirected the answer into something that would force us to examine our heart instead. Doesn't that ring true the moment that you hear it? Think about all the questions Jesus was asked. Should we pay taxes to Caesar or not? Jesus, tell my brother to share the inheritance with me. Jesus, this woman's been divorced seven times. Whose wife will she be in heaven? Every time Jesus sidesteps the obvious answer and redirects the questioner to uh, examine their heart instead. Someone just told me between services, their seminary professor told them, the answer to every question to Jesus is, why do you want to know? Why do you want to know? Why are you asking that? So let's take some time this morning and do what Jesus would probably ask to do if he were standing in my place. Examine our hearts. So someone breaks into your home and you shoot them. From God's point of view, what just happened? The one who was killed was a child of God too. Imagine if you had a son and he went wayward or he got strung out on drugs or whatever happened and he broke into someone's house and they killed him. You would logically in your head say, he shouldn't have been there. But your heart would also be broken. All hope that your son would be redeemed someday and get back on the path would be lost. It would be the saddest moment of your life. I'm not saying if you believe one of your brothers is a threat to you, you shouldn't use lethal force to stop him, but it should be a sad moment, not a cause for celebration. See, I think there's a continuum going on 
on this issue. Over here you have the pure pacifist, the person who separates himself from all violence, the person who even in the face of a serial killer would kneel and pray for their salvation even as they and their family are slain. Over here you have the sadist, somebody who delights and celebrates in um, inflicting pain and death. They may even get some sort of pleasure from harming and killing others. Now, 99% of us are somewhere in between these two. But I'm finding too many American Christians that I meet are closer to this side than they should be. Examine your heart. Are you gleeful at the idea of getting to shoot someone? That's not of Jesus, and you know it. Do you fantasize about it? Do you practice for it? Is your home an armed fortress that you laugh and smirk as you show people around, showing them how your house is now a place ready to inflict death, that you feel it is your right and your privilege to inflict? Could you show Jesus around that house that way? Where is your heart? All right, we have some police officers who have been reluctant to uh, identify themselves, but I'm going to need your help. If I ask you some questions, can you just give me like one-word answers? All right, all right. Sorry to out you. You, know, you weren't undercover, right? <laughs> Not anymore. <laughs> They're posing as compassionate Christians who serve in the church. <laughs> all right. Out of 10 break-in calls that you respond to, okay, I'm talking about those ones where someone's home and they say, someone's breaking into my house and I'm in it. Come help me. Out of 10 of those calls you respond to, how many turn out to be elderly people or drunk people who have somehow gotten confused and they are in the wrong place? Two or three out of 10. How many are people who actually do belong there? They actually live there, but they got locked out or they came home at a time they weren't expected? He says five out of 10 are those, okay? How many are teenagers making a colossally bad choice, but they're not dangerous? All the rest. Oh, my. How many are actual real home invasions? We had one this morning. God bless us. Five a year. Is your heart ready for one of those other situations? I'm not saying that we're going to blame you if you shoot an Alzheimer's patient who is kicking down your front door. But when the smoke smoke clears, you'll have to ask, where was your heart? Were you praying? Were you trying to find another way? But in the fear and confusion, you did what you thought you had to do, and then it was a terrible mistake. Or were you running on a program you'd rehearsed in your mind a hundred times? You snapped up a weapon and said, this is it. This is now my chance to kill and I'll be a hero. How will you stand before God with that blood on your hands and that in your heart? You know your pastor used to break into houses carrying a gun, don't you? Oh, not me. Pastor Dan Wilburn. You've heard him stand up here and say this, right? Oh, yes, little gentle Pastor Dan. At, six, at 16 years old, used to break into houses carrying a gun. And then Jesus Christ, the next year, took a hold of his life after he prayed, help me. He was doing something really, really stupid. No question. And it was evil. 
and it was sin. But is your heart praying for the young Dan Wilburns of the world? Or just practicing to be an extermination squad to erase them from the face of the earth because nothing good can ever come of a kid like that? Except that we're all sitting in his life's work. About 15 years ago, this story came out on the news. A man and his wife had been out for the evening having dinner for their anniversary. They came home. They'd had so much fun, they decided to watch a movie late into the night. And then they went to bed. But at 3 a.m., they heard a sound in the closet. The man had a loaded weapon in his room, so he snapped up his gun. He threw open the closet door. Who's there? He demanded. No answer. Just a slow, quiet shift as someone rose to a standing position. Had they snuck in while he and his wife were out? Had they hidden in the closet when they came home? Were they now trying to make their escape? Who's there? He demanded. And they came out of the closet right at him. He pulled the trigger. In the flash of the muzzle, he saw his 15-year-old daughter's face. She had hidden... She had hidden in the closet thinking it would be funny to jump out and scare them when they got home from dinner. But they'd put that movie in. So she just sat down on the floor and then fallen asleep. Waking up in a dark closet in the middle of the night, she was disoriented, not realizing where she was. There was someone yelling. Why she emerged, we don't know. Was she still half asleep? Or was she now performing her practical joke? We don't know because she died immediately. Police found the man on the front lawn with his pistol, sobbing, I killed my baby. It was an accident, and I don't know this man, but as a father, I know that he's had 10 years to think about everything that led up to that moment. Why, of all the options open to him, did he choose that option? If he was afraid and panicked, then that is surely in his heart one thing. But if he'd arranged that room and his heart for a quick kill his whole life, I assure you for that man and his own heart, that will be something entirely different for him to deal with. Let us all arrange our hearts around violence so that should we ever have to participate in it, we can stand before God and honestly say, I never wanted this to happen. I think the ancient church was wise when they wrote that rule. When a Christian soldier kills someone on the battlefield or a Christian man kills someone in self-defense, let him remove himself from communion for three years to weep and mourn. Let him join in the heart of God also and do what God would be doing in that same situation. But let him remain in the church so that all can see what has happened. And then after three years, let him be restored to communion, for that is the symbol of forgiveness, and we will be brothers and sisters and continue forward. We need to be moving this way. I've already said that I personally don't think Jesus is all the way over here, but Jesus is not to be found anywhere in this neighborhood, and you already know that. You want to be saved? Walk that way toward peace, toward love. Be cautious. 
Protect the innocent. But move ever closer toward the heart of God. Let us close by standing together and reading these words of Jesus. Let us read these together. You have heard the law that says the punishment must match the injury, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say, do not resist an evil person. If someone slaps you on the right cheek, offer the other cheek also. If you are sued in court and your shirt is taken from you, give your coat too. If a soldier demands that you carry his gear for a mile, carry it two miles. Give to those who ask and don't turn away from those who want to borrow. You have heard the law that says, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. And that way you will be acting as true children of your Father in heaven. For he gives his sunlight to both the evil and the good. And he sends rain on the just and the unjust alike. If you love only those who love you, what reward is there for that? Even corrupt tax collectors do that much. If you are killed, uh, kind, I said that first service too. If you are kind only to your friends, how are you different from anyone else? Even pagans do that. But you are to be perfect, even as your Father in heaven is perfect. So on the night Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it. He said, this is my body broken for you. If I wanted off this cross, I could have called an entire legion of angels. But instead I say, this cup is my blood of the new covenant poured out for the forgiveness of sin. The forgiveness of all sin. Even the forgiveness for the sin of taking a life. Even if you have taken a life, there is forgiveness. Let him weep and mourn and then be restored to communion. All sin. In this bread and this cup. He said, as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you remember my death until I eat and drink it with you in my Father's kingdom. So the way we do it here is we come forward, we tear off a piece of bread and we dip it in the cup. And when we receive it, it symbolizes so many things. But today, let's focus on the forgiveness of sins, whatever they may be. And let's focus on uniting us, that we're coming to one table, one cup, one for all the disagreements and divisiveness going on in the world, that we come here and we are united around Jesus Christ and this table. And this makes us one. If you don't want to come forward and participate in either of those symbols, that's totally fine. You can do that here. This is the church for exploring. But think about what we just said that means and what it would mean to let that into your life, to let Jesus' body and blood into you for forgiveness and, and oneness. Therefore, let us proclaim the mystery of faith. Christ has died. Christ has risen. Christ will come again. Christ, our Passover, is sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast. Hallelujah. The gifts of God for the people of God. Each day, may Christ be as real to you as this food and this drink. For you, you can see this is what makes us Christian with Christians all around the world. As we say this together, 
I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who is conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven. He is seated at the right hand of the Father, and he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, one holy church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and life everlasting. Amen. In that unity as brothers and sisters, go in peace.